0: here in the 11FS office in WeWork Allgate, London for episode 72 of Blockchain Insider. The weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you China unbanned crypto, or maybe not, the SEC charges EtherDelta and Coinbase will freeze your eggs. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. As always, I'm Simon Taylor and without a Colin or a field in sight, but Don't worry, everybody. I'm joined by the one and only Tina Baker-Taylor, TBT herself. How are you?
1: I'm good, Simon.
0: I'm loving having you back. And uh, do you live near a field? I
1: do. I, I do live near I a field. Knew yes. I
0: knew it. I knew you lived near a field. How yes. is your field?
1: Uh, it's great. It's yeah. muddy and boggy and... I, that doesn't strike
0: me as great. Like,
1: well, it's nice when make you take fields your, great again, your Tina. furry dogs out in the <laughs> furry field.
0: <laughs> furry dogs in furry fields. Yeah. Well, I can't get into that um, too much more because that sounds weird. Tweed uh, abounds. Tweed Tweed and Fields. Um, You you learn a lot on Blockchain Insider. That's why people listen to podcasts, to learn about fields and other things. And thankfully for other things, we're joined by Patrick Mang from HSBC. Patrick, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Patrick, what do you do? Um, So I'm the head of innovation at uh, Global Markets at HSBC.
2: I've been a longtime fan of the show, so it's really great to see it.
0: Well, we're excited to have you. And if you are um, somebody who works in a bank and or anywhere else and you're a fan of the show, do get in touch, podcasts at 11FS.com, and you too may find your way onto the show. And Patrick, you've had some interesting news this week.
2: Uh, yes. So this morning, um, we went public with an announcement that uh, HSBC has invested some money in Exony, ah. which is a New York-based blockchain company that's uh, heavily active in, um, you know, with the DTCC, Yes. and, uh, you know, improving derivatives processing for banks. Shout out
0: to the Schwe brothers. Well done, guys. Um, and uh, they've been around for quite some time. Axoni's doing some interesting things. If you're not familiar with them, uh, do look up Axoni on the Google machine. All righty, first story this week comes from BTCNN. Uh, China apparently lifts the Bitcoin ban. Individual businesses can now own cryptocurrencies legally. Um, Bitcoin is apparently now recognized as a legal asset to be owned, transferred, and utilized as a medium of payment for goods and services in China, as decreed by the Shenzhen Court of International Arbitration after ordering the Bitcoin ban in 2017. Hmm. Hmm. So, this seems like great news. Surely the price of everything should be skyrocketing. Yeah. Like, you, this is not investment advice, but that's what you would expect from something like this, because China had historically driven all of this. Like, what's going on, Tina?
1: Well, they didn't actually change the law. So that's why... You haven't seen a huge shift because it's, it is news, but it's slightly misinformed news.
0: Oh. So, uh,
1: essentially the Shenzhen, <laughs> Shenzhen International Court of Arbitration did indeed resolve a dispute involving Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Diamond. Um, and an arbiter made a decision, um, that basically said that crypto was protected under China's property and contract law.
0: So there was a dispute going on between Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Diamond. Where have I heard that before? No, no, no.
1: <laughs> there, were, there were three parties that had gone into some kind of uh, share agreement. Right. So they all owned a portion of said portfolio. It's quite complicated, actually. I encourage you to have a look at Catherine Wu from Masari's tweet on this earlier this week. She breaks it down really well. Um, but between these three parties, somebody was supposed to pay somebody and somebody was supposed to pay somebody. Somebody else, and then there was some interest involved, yada, yada. Long story short, one person then didn't want to pay up and sued the other person or one of the other people. And the person being sued said, "Well, ICOs are illegal, so this entire contract should be void."
0: Ah, okay. Uh So this is a dispute between two people that has been ruled on that hasn't changed the actual law. That is correct. Yeah, which which is which is confusing at the best of times. I mean, uh, Patrick, you've been a veteran of markets. You've seen um, massive growth, I suppose, through the Chinese market, and um, you know, kind of that east to west translation is is kind of a problem that I guess uh, we're getting more and more used to.
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, China's obviously a great market opportunity, but still it's largely, um, occupied by, you know, domestic investors. Mm-hmm. So as the internationalization of, you know, the Chinese markets continues, um, I think we're going to see more and more people having to become familiar with the in and outs of sort of Chinese law and mm-hmm. essentially who's a reputable source of things.
0: I would expect that to um, hopefully continue. But it's surprising that crypto markets haven't covered themselves in glory. Well, it's not surprising that crypto markets haven't covered themselves in glory when it comes to the headline and the rumor being used in the short term. But then that's markets generally,
1: isn't it? Yeah, but the story is actually quite interesting. So the decision... um, they, a couple of things were, were cited. So, you know, one, whether or not Bitcoin is illegal, the circulation and the payment of Bitcoin is not illegal. So it kind of doesn't matter. Um, Bitcoin doesn't have the same rights as fiat, but that doesn't mean that holding or paying with crypto is illegal. So they've claimed that. Um, And then the arbiter stated that um, Bitcoin lives in the digital world and has different characteristics in Fiat, but that doesn't stop it from being a form of payment. So what's important here is that it's a private settlement. An arbiter is not a judge. So, you know, this shouldn't be confused with law. But these types of things do start to set a bit of precedence. Mm. Um, So if it had been reported accurately, it's actually quite an interesting
0: story. You could see this uh, being research in case. Law years later, um, I, I, it's, the interesting thing is the nuance of uh, when you look when you step back and look at the the Chinese quote unquote ban crypto to crypto trading has continued uh, quite happily. It's fiat to crypto, uh, and actually. Every statement you just made, and uh, what the arbiter said, is entirely consistent with the allowing of crypto to crypto trading, which is still a significant portion of the overall crypto market, um, and which,
1: especially in Asia,
0: especially in Asia, which yeah. brings its own risks, though. Yeah. Um, you know, around you know, what is the fair valuation, and how does that link back to the the uh, world of the financial system, etc. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but speaking, oh, but, but the heart of it, it
2: doesn't seem like. I mean. It, so it's an accurate story. It's perhaps a little bit overblown for the implications of it. But ultimately, it doesn't really seem that surprising. It, it's basically they, they said that, you know, if I own magic swords in my game and you tried to swindle me out of them, they're still my magic swords. We can argue whether they have value or not. But, you know, effectively, I think what they're arguing is that you can't cheat another person. Mm-hmm. Yes, which it's seems property.
1: Like a yeah. <laughs> whether it's a, reasonable a, ba- a bag of rocks or magic swords <laughs> or whatever, it, it is covered under property
0: law. The troll in me really wants to push that to the nth degree. Magic swords? Yeah, well, no, beyond magic swords, what's the most ridiculous thing that I could argue about? Could I argue about some grains of sand? Like, could I go that far? Anyway, um, the troll in me aside, um, the next story comes from Coindesk. Uh, Coindesk.com. The SEC have charged the EtherDelta founder over an unregistered securities exchange. Dun, dun, dun. Briefly, EtherDelta, I think they were one of the first decentralized exchanges. Do you want to remind everybody who they are, Tina?
1: Um, I don't know the full details, but they they are a decentralized exchange. Um, They are known for having a plethora of altcoins. So they they were trading a considerable amount of tokens. Um, And... I think the SEC has taken the view that there was, you know, sufficient infrastructure. They were operating out of an order book. Um, You know, they, they had an exchange essentially. So, um, they i think what the the challenge was is that they had issued a a statement that basically said if you're trading any of these types of um tokens which had been deemed securities you had a period of time with which to declare that um to the SEC and apparently he didn't um so you know that he's now been fined um just shy of $400,000 um which to me i kind of think if they were trying to make a example, $400,000 doesn't necessarily seem like that big of a penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a number of, uh, you know, exchange. Owners globally, or you know, project owners that have taken a view that you know, until until we get fined, we'll just carry on because we may never get fined, and the law is ambiguous, so we don't have regulations, and so we're just going to carry on as we are. And if we get fined, we can afford the fines. So, if you are um, approaching this, waiting to be fined, is four hundred thousand really a deterrent?
2: But is there a second step? Have they promised to register?
1: No. Um, I- because
2: surely they can't just be fined and then just carry on until they get a fine next month again. No. I just went
0: to the EtherDelta website and it's still up. Um, but so- there was
1: a big fat question mark I saw yesterday. Did you see an order book?
0: I did. I just saw an order book. Okay. I, when right. I, that was the first thing I saw when I went to EtherDelta.com. So just very quickly, um, they. I guess there's uh, – EtherDelta are source code that you can download from GitHub. So they say, well, anybody can run a copy of this. It runs on your PC. Um, you control your keys. You control... So technologically, a, a lot of this looks a lot more like um, a non-custodial Bitcoin wallet. In other words, you are uh, in control of your assets and you are in control of the software. This software happens to peer-to-peer connect you to other people who want to trade across an order book.
1: More like a marketplace versus an exchange.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's it, it, it's 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 actually much more um, reminiscent of a marketplace. But if you think back to the days of BitTorrent, it it sort of reminds me of that in terms of how it operates technically. So you can see the point they were trying to make, um, but the SEC statement actually came out and said, well, yes... But their smart contract, in other words, the software that ran on the Ethereum uh, platform, was coded to validate those order messages, confirm the terms and conditions of those orders, execute paired orders, and direct the distributed ledger to be updated to reflect the trade. So regardless of how decentralized the main bits of the software were, regardless of how decentralized the wallets were and the custody of the assets were. There was still a little bit in the middle yeah. that some human had written um, that did yeah. these things.
1: And we've been talking about that for, for a couple of months now. So, and I think that's really what's most compelling about this case. So, you know, we've talked about are regulators going to be able to shut down decentralized exchanges, right? Um, and that are developers responsible for the code that they write, Right.
0: And, and, and I guess um, – so are they going to be able to shut it down is a different question too. Are they going to be able to find the authors who wrote the software? Well,
1: and that's what they did here.
0: Yes. So there are consequences even if that consequence isn't shutting down your service. Um, and actually – whether or not they can shut it down. I mean, Ethereum in theory and in practical um, reality, you can write unstoppable code. Uh, is that unstoppable code the best in the market? Can somebody outcompete you? Not necessarily, you know, yes, they can. Um, but also, are there no consequences for the person that writes that unstoppable code? No, you're a human and you're subject to nation-states laws.
1: And, but, you know, is this one of those situations where there's going to be increasing legal complexity for these developers that are contributing to, let's say, the Ethereum or the Bitcoin, um, you know, protocol layers? And is merely writing and executing, executing code going to make technologists vulnerable to legal action? I mean, that, that's a bit of a concern for me.
0: Well, so there was a statement from the CFTC going back to mid-October where the Commissioner Brian Quintence said that smart contract developers should in some cases be liable for how their blockchain applications operate. Uh, It does to me say that this idea that you could just roll your own blockchain, roll your own code, roll your own smart contract is not as simple as it sounds because when you're dealing with people's money, the code you write has consequences, and that's important. The code you write has consequences. So if you write some code that is a Ponzi scheme that deals everybody out of the money, have you done something dishonest? Or ha- you know, have you absolved your responsibility because you didn't do the de- evil deed the code you wrote did? I don't know that you have. Well, I thought I'm,
1: that was the ARGA uh, challenge a couple weeks ago.
0: Yeah. Around,
1: yeah. you know, if you're creating predictive markets for nefarious activities, um, you know, who's responsible well, for Well, I that? would argue
0: with ARGA... Um, A-U-G-U-R, I think it is, right? Um, They've created a prediction market. The prediction market uh, subject has a history of being for nefarious purposes. They would argue that you can use prediction markets for anything, um, but so you know the subjective intent and then there's the u.s
1: midterm elections they had a huge amount of volume going through arga
0: mm-hmm. but there's the subjective intent i.e what the developer intended to do and then there's the real consequences of what the thing does and you will always be judged by the real consequences of what the thing does if you did it um, and to me the fine amount of as was pointed out earlier, um, says to me that um, subjective intent and the, the sort of a level of naivety around your consequences in these early phases uh, really is is standing out to me. Well, and he
1: cooperated, but mm. you know, Patrick, looking at you know other financial institutions, they cooperate with regulators all the time, and do, do they get do they get a soft fine because they cooperate? Well, you definitely get a
2: lower fine if you cooperate, right? That. I think a generally accepted principle. It just happens to be that the magnitude of the fine is usually larger. But, you know, I guess my take on this would be, um, you know, the fact that they're trying to be decentralized, I think, is very interesting. Um, You know, it's certainly uh, a step forward, I suppose, in the technology of how exchanges might work. And it might, you know, in the future break monopoly power that exists on, you know, traded venues at the moment, right, which has been one of the probably takeaways of electronification and things like the equities markets over the past, you know, since – um, I don't know when would it would be, like, in the... Certainly since probably about 2000s, right? And then you've had to have these regulations to try and reestablish a national market mm-hmm. under things like Reagan MS, et cetera. So, you know, the technology is interesting. The decentralization aspect is interesting. But I think to the points about the prediction markets is, you know, if, if it you know looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then you should register being as being a duck.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, especially if duck, being a duck is a regulated activity. Uh, quack. Um, this is getting quackers, right? Um, before I make any more bad jokes and dad jokes, um, the, the other interesting linked story here is about uh, Coindesk um, and there's an expectation that the SEC are going to target more token exchanges. And this is more of a shot across the bow than making an example from an, uh, you know, in EtherDelta's case. I think that, like, I'm reading the tea leaves here. I don't have this on any authority, um, but I suspect the regulators recognise they're dealing with a level of developer naivety and a, develop- a level of um, kind of people that haven't dealt with the consequences of people's money before, just the consequences of code, um, and and therefore are looking to uh, educate and gradually turn up the, the, the cooker um, and the heater on people until they get the sort of behaviour that they're looking well, for. Well, and-,
1: and, th- and they've said, you know... Um, it- Let this be, you know, a a soft lesson to you all. And by the way, we're setting up a sandbox. So if you have any concerns about what you're up to, please come in and see us in this friendly, consultative environment. You know, bring us into the discussion. I mean, that is, I think, the whole point of the SEC sandbox.
0: Which is going back to Patrick's point about decentralization itself is interesting. Uh, You can redesign how markets work in a in a completely decentralized way but you have to consider all of the things all of the uh, collective knowledge of human history from the past that says but here are the things that might go wrong and society's way of doing that is talking to the regulator and why would you turn down that uh, knowledge if it's an open hand and a hold harmless like a sandbox i, I really think that um, you know the in the uk the fca in singapore uh, the monetary authority of singapore uh, abu dhabi global market there are uh, gibraltar um and, and other places there are regulators that are really trying to say, if you're doing this stuff, we think it's interesting, but let's have a chat about how we make this safe. And I think this, this is a real change from regulators. You didn't see this 20 years ago. No. You didn't see innovation be something that you could have a conversation with a regulator about. But now, actually, I think this, this sort of um, collegiate approach, but with enough distance from when, you know, when you're large – to when a project is early. Uh, There's two different things.
2: Well, I mean, I think the FCA sandbox is is the one I know the most about. Um, I was part of the consultations when we set it up. Um, You know, and HSBC has been at least through the sandbox at least twice, right, in some projects. But if you actually look at the projects, maybe half of them are probably the crypto blockchain projects. So, you know, to the open hand approach, right, they're clearly entertaining, you know, these types of companies. So it seems you're turning down valuable guidance if you you know, uh, don't partake in it.
0: I think a lot of organizations have... As a startup, they have a limited amount of runway, so they are trying to get the result quickly, so tend to go to either just trying to get the thing to work and, and you know, regulation takes time. It costs uh,
1: very little to build a relationship in the grand scheme of things.
0: I, I would agree, but also due diligence takes time and doing things well takes time. Uh, the sandbox is a way to lower that barrier, mm-hmm. but but I do suspect that where you find yourself with decentralized exchanges is a different place because now with Ether, what you have is an ability to build, write some code that can generate you cash flow long before you run out of runway and it looks and feels to you like you're operating a business that's generating cash flow and everything's fine until the real world consequences come and get you. The traditional world of VC, that didn't happen because your runway was limited until you got regulated or until a thing happened. So that may be what's driving this. Cool. All right, next story again comes from Coindesk. The CFTC have fined a Bitcoin trader 1.1 million US dollars for crypto fraud. So the CFTC jailed Uh, A Bitcoin trader and fined him over a million dollars for running a fraudulent Bitcoin and Litecoin scheme. Uh, So Arizona resident Joseph Kim admitted to defrauding investors of hundreds of thousands of dollars after misappropriating more than $600,000 of his previous employer's funds. Whoopsie. Whoops. <laughs> uh, so they, uh, he was also then soliciting funds from individual customers, apparently uh, continuing to trade crypto in the hope of making profits to repay his ex employer. Um, <laughs> in addition to the fine, he's also permanently banned Kim from trading, including in cryptocurrencies. How are they going to do that? Uh, and sentenced him to 15 months in jail. Wow. Uh, if you're familiar with the story of Nick Leeson, as yeah. you said before we start the show, Tina, it's almost exactly what happened, except he didn't bring down Barings Bank.
1: Pretty much. It's it's more like the Sock Gen guy. Ah, uh,
0: so don't, don't you Adiboli. think?
1: Yeah. Um, or Adaboli. No, no, sorry, yes. he was UBS. Yeah, uh, the Sock Gen guy curvial. is Kerviel. Uh, yeah. So in both of those cases, um, you know, I think uh Leeson was a little bit more complex but in in the other two cases, it was you know throwing you know good money after bad yeah. and and trying to kind of recoup the losses before one got found out. in this case, it doesn't say why he moved all that money um why he basically stole money from his employer that's yeah. that's what he did um and then you know did did he need it for a loan? was he buying a house like why would one do this? Um, and then try and clean it up. Like if you're going to steal the money, steal the money and do a runner, right? I don't, I don't really the, understand.
0: There is this weird track record, as you say, of uh, in financial markets of these famous traders who end up in this position where they get into trouble, and the way they try and get out of trouble is by getting Doubling into more, down. Tr- yeah. double down into more trouble now, just so that nobody yeah. know. Whilst nobody knows, I'll take another risk, and oh wait, that didn't work. I need to take another risk. Um, this is a story as old as time. The interesting piece for me is about who's enforced it and how they've enforced it. Um, Bitcoin is clearly here falling under the remit of the CFTC. There, there are now no arguments about that in the U.S. If you're trading Bitcoin, you're in the CFTC's radar. Um, secondly, they can jail you. Yeah. So be careful out there, kids. Well, I'm just
2: looking at the timing, though, right? Because from the press release, the timing seems to be he started this in about September of last year. Mm-hmm. And then the parts where he tries to like fraudulently get money from new customers happens you know, post-January. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if this is actually all related to what we'd be... Classic, right? Is he was borrowing money or trading around sort of the bubble. Yeah. And when it popped from 20,000, then he sat on massive losses and he was just trying to figure out how to, you know, fill in the hole. Yep. Uh, I think he, he might have gotten caught out in the whipsaw of the market. Yeah. I think
1: I think we we've seen this happen, and you know when somebody loses seven billion, which is what happened at SockGen, or two billion at UBS. I mean, they're they're huge numbers, and you wonder how on earth did they get away with that? Um, they had to circumvent so many levels of controls to be able to do that. Um, but I think what's different uh, in some cases in the crypto space is not all of those controls exist, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't have a, a front, middle, and back office in some cases. You you might have a appliance team but is it as sophisticated how did they not notice that first batch of money going out the door in the first place and
0: and i would argue that the way we've always done controls are not necessarily the way you should always do controls but why you have controls is still the same and this is a classic example you need to be aware of things that are happening on your behalf inside your organization and And if you're in in a technology that's so data driven especially with bitcoin like the data's all there like if your internal systems can't give you the data then what are you doing cuz you built that company in the last few years
1: well and, and and i don't know and and maybe we we're not meant to know but the chicago based trading firm that he worked for you know i'm assuming this is you know a big yeah. commodities firm, right? So you would think that they would yeah, have. But maybe had- they
2: have like the
0: one guy who knows how to operate the system, right? Maybe, maybe. it's sort of a lack of expertise and training, right? Like that—that's a risk, right? And and actually, as you look at larger organizations, especially in um, the the, in the sort of uh, trading venue space. They have that risk of expertise of you know there is a lot of uh, supposed and uh, often mooted uh, institutional demand out there for crypto. if they find themselves dipping their toe into crypto, um, then this could be the risk is is that do you have a a key person dependency risk? Are you reliant on that one person who knows it all that 's a really interesting point. Alrighty, this episode is brought to you by R3 and their blockchain. It's not just for financial services. Tons of industries can reap major benefits um, across insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, you name it. Discover the potential of blockchain for your business with R3's Corda platform. R3's Corda platform offers privacy, interoperability, integration, and consensus, plus... It includes the mission-critical features that every complex business needs, including the world's only blockchain application firewall, the quarter platform, blockchain for every business in every industry. Head over to R3.com for more info. Alrighty, next story comes from Forbes.com. Why centralized cryptocurrency exchanges make terrible custodians for crypto assets. So centralized exchanges are apparently subject to tremendous number of problems simply because they contravene uh, one of the cardinal laws of cryptocurrency. The owner of the private key is also the owner of the asset. Hmm. The biggest exchanges like Binance and OKEx and Huobi take control of user funds and use them for market manipulation. Strong statement. It is. Uh, Instead of having the custodian working for the customer, they have their own interests at heart. Custodial exchanges are like the fox guarding the hen house. Uh, Wow. I mean, I guess the point around separation of concerns is a fair one, right? In, In financial markets, historically, the people who would look after the asset, the custodian, was separated intentionally from the people who would be buying it, who would be selling it, who would be like you played that role and that was uh, done on purpose from the lessons for history. Um, But this was actually written by Rachel Wolfson, who is actually a contributor to Forbes. And I'm clicking in, she's an entrepreneur and writer based in San Francisco, California. Um, But actually, I'm just trying to see her LinkedIn because this is a very sort of, uh, interesting viewpoint from a contributor on Forbes. Forbes contributors, I think it's important to note, are not Forbes journalists. Um, so this is effectively an op-ed piece. Um, and she's a podcast co-host at Bad Crypto LLC. So we might have to get in touch and do some crossover. Um, <laughs> but it looks like um, sort of she's contributed to the Huffington Post, um, brand ambassador for a media place, a content marketing manager, marketing content. I'm not seeing a massive amount of financial markets background. I'm not seeing works in crypto. I'm just wondering what this uh, claim about uh, people are doing market manipulation is is, is based on, or the risk of it.
1: Well, there's a number of things. So I think you know we also have a follow up post. Um, to this story, which is indeed another opinion. It's a medium post. Um, but, you know, we have seen, um, a number of, um, analysts taking a look at, um, you know, order books and transaction volumes, um, over the last few months. And there, you know, the, what is the transparency there? Um, we, we do know. I'm not saying that these exchanges that are noted here are doing it, but we do know, um, across many centralized exchanges that there are, you know, wash trading and spoofing and, you know, there, there is some, you know, kind of naughtiness going on. Um. We also know that, you know, there are some exchanges that um, there's been evidence that they trade against their customers, Mm -hmm. right? Um, That they monetize liquidations. Um, When we had that huge breach at OKX, and they had that enormous futures position that they were unable to cover and they had to socialize those losses across their um, entire customer base. So, you know, there have been bits and pieces of questionable stuff um, popping up. And and perhaps this is where she has come to this opinion. But just last week, um, the CEO of the Hong Kong Securities and Futures Commission gave a speech at the um, Hong Kong FinTech Week. um, And he was addressing these issues. So, you know, it's getting to regulators that this is a problem, Mm -hmm. whether or not it is. um, They're starting to see it as one. And his statement said, you know, crypto exchanges may act both as agents for customers as well as principal dealers trading their own book. If they're not regulated, it would be difficult to detect and monitor the major conflicts of interests when they arise. And I think that's the issue.
0: The conflict of interest issue is the issue. And it's something we've seen in markets for many years.
2: Yeah. But I also don't think that it's purely down to, you know, this custody, non-custody thing, right? Because, you know, you made a point that, I suppose, in the institutional market, right, custody and the exchange is usually a separated function, right? But if you look at, like, retail brokerage, that's your standard experience. Yeah, Like, on your Fidelity account, they keep it. Right. For uh-huh. you. Right. And so you, I guess, more or less trust that they as regulated broker dealers, whatever, are not, you know, misusing your, your Using your it shares. to try their own prop. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Which
0: is also not a thing you expect a broker dealer to do. Right. Because you right. just expect them to act as agent. Well, and you sort of saw this around the scandal that happened with Robinhood. Mm-hmm. um so they they yep. had a thing where actually um they were they were sort of uh, tipping off well not tipping off but they were uh, selling the their order book to um high frequency traders well, they so saw that the, the flow yeah so yeah. the the h f t um voice could see the flow so that they could front run effectively mm-hmm. and and um make a spread and um kind of uh then pay for that flow um which is to some immoral, but not illegal. That's
1: exactly it. So how much of these trading volumes are accurate or unaffected by market abuse? And while these types of market manipulation are unethical, without regulation, they're not illegal.
0: Well, and I guess without regulation is dependent upon jurisdiction, right? So um, in if, if I'm a centralized exchange in the United States and I trade Bitcoin, I am according to what we've talked about today, very clearly subject to the CFTC's rules around uh, preventing market manipulation. And indeed, some of the reasons why uh, the other regulators there have not been happy about bringing e- uh, EFTs to market, ETFs to market Sorry, um, has been around the lack of controls across the industry to, prevent, to detect and prevent and report uh, potential market manipulation. So this does appear to be a problem. But this, this story itself is wrapped up as a, oh, well, this would be solved it if you... It does sound very emphatic, yes. It, it, it does. It, it, this makes the point that, well, if everybody controlled their own uh, crypto, then this wouldn't be a problem. No, it still would be a problem yep. if you controlled your it's own crypto. Yeah, it, it's not a custody thing. Yeah, I mean, it's not a custody thing.
2: It feels symptomatic of,
0: you know, I don't know, immaturity
2: or lack of controls in the industry as a whole, right? Because it basically seems to me the argument that, you know, um, my money is safer if I stick it under my mattress because then, you know, no one can take it away from me and I don't have to trust it to
0: the bank. But keep in mind, that was the motivating thesis behind the development of Bitcoin true. for a lot of people um, and there still is a hardcore anti-authority, anti-establishment sure. um, anarchy view that like um, my guns and my crypto, that's all I need in this world uh, and, and that's, that's what you see in these articles is people sort of making out, well if, if everybody just held their own crypto um, and was their own bank then we wouldn't have any of these problems but I don't think that's true, you would still have these problems, uh, it's just that uh, the consequences for these problems would be you are sol my friend you also have other problems like people losing their keys (laughs) completely and i think consumer key management is going to be an absolutely massive massive issue and i think to the point you made earlier about um, in the crypto world controls are immature doesn't apply across the piece actually in the crypto world some of the controls you see are phenomenal um, without wanting to be betray the confidence, uh, my former employer, um, I remember looking across a number of organizations and there were some whereby you'd go, wow, this is best in class for any financial services organization anywhere in the world. You know, A lot of tier ones would kill for the types of controls some companies in crypto have. They're incredibly good. So crypto has this habit of being both sublime and ridiculous mm. um, in that the controls in some of the corners are very immature, but that shouldn't prevent us from shining Light on the fact that the controls in other corners are phenomenal. Yeah, and we should we should look to learn from that that in financial services. All right, um, next story comes from uh, CoinDesk.com. Crypto token airdrops are a marketing ploy. And that's okay. Um, So an airdrop, for those unfamiliar, is, I guess, more or less as it sounds. I have an account or I have a wallet, say I've got a blockchain.com wallet or, in some cases, a Coinbase wallet, uh, and I have a couple of Bitcoin. Uh, Somebody decides, uh, let's say they're um, producer of ICO123, they decide to distribute everybody with a full Bitcoin, you'll get... uh, you'll get a handful of my one, two, three coins. PTK. Yeah. Pitch, Colin G.
1: Platt, airdrop airdropper's um, some
0: PTK. Airdropper's that PTK, Colin. Um, and actually, there's a real question about whether this is, you know, kind of doing the old network enhancement, giving away something for free, or are they pumping up the price of their coin? Or is this an old-fashioned share rights issue? Um, and this is a really thoughtful piece from Coindesk, um, like, that sort of plays to the pros and the cons. Uh, it's by Michael Casey, and it's a long piece. And I think he kind of comes to the view of like, well, look, there are some people dressing up. What you know, there's a really good tweet here from Pierre Rochard. Watch out for giveaway scams, right? That that's an issue. Dressing themselves up as air tokens, you know, they, they allow you to do all kinds of things, and and you've got to watch out. But there are some. There is the need for nuance, and he goes on to make the point that. Uh, If you are uh, kind of looking to create network effects, the old-fashioned give somebody some of your product to get them started. Uber gives you five pounds if you refer a friend. An airdrop is basically that at one level. But on another level, it's a bit more complicated because there's a network that may be moving value and it may represent an unregistered security. So you've got to be careful with this stuff.
1: Um, for me I think the real question around airdrops is the value and how much do we value something that's free, right? So there's the old adage, you know, never give away puppies for free, you know, charge somebody fifty bucks because they won't value it. They won't take care of it if it's give free. away puppies. Yeah, yeah, that's why <laughs> can, people don't give away puppies or kittens or whatever you should charge someone for them. If anyone tries to give you a free puppy, say no. Um, but um so is this a loss lead to drive adoption? Um, And we see that in in loads of advertising, you know, buy one, get one free or, you know, buy this today and get something tomorrow.
0: I think it's very different to give somebody a thing because you're like if a network gives you a thing and you have no interest in that thing already, then what you're doing is as a product or a brand, you're devaluing yourself. You're saying, um, I'm going to give you this for free and you haven't given me anything yet. It's very different to create scarcity and have one of your friends go, hey, I've got this referral ticket, this referral Token, I can get you in. Now I've created scarcity, and you've gotten some value from it. So there's an interesting product and psychology thing about airdrops that I don't think works as well as intended. Mm. Um, but then, you know, famously, uh, Stellar Lumens were airdropped into yep. accounts number of times, um, and Stellar Lumens have Very gone.
3: Recently. They just, they, yeah, they they've done like- it a
0: couple of times historically. And they've gone on to slowly, steadily build credibility as a network with more and more people building things on, on top of their platform. So it's not entirely ridiculous. But from a, with my product hat on, you know, as we build products and services for banks and consumer platforms, you don't give stuff away. You create scarcity and get everybody to want it. The classic example is Facebook. Mm-hmm. Facebook didn't start available to everybody when it first started rolled out. It was uh, a few universities, uh, a few colleges in the USA. And then the word got out to the next college. Monzo. Yeah. Monzo with their golden ticket. Yeah. There's always scarcity and you find out from your friend about the real sort of um, yep. the scarcity things. There's yeah, but it can't
2: be scarce just because it's scarce, right? It's saying like um, I suppose that the tokens have to give you access to some network of, mm-hmm. of value, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like a Monzo service or you know, like the Uber ride, right? Like, I'm going to use this token in order to access something that's valuable, right? Just saying that, like, you know, like pet rocks, like have some pet rocks and I'm going to give those away to you. I don't know if that... Well, the, I think Just that's because they're t- scarce doesn't mean it's valuable. You, well, yeah, so... Uh, it has to be scarce because uh, the value that you're accessing is...
0: I think that's a really good point because actually, what came with Facebook, what came with Monzo, is oh, you're you're telling me this thing is valuable. Whereas when a network airdrops me a thing, it's like, well, what's that thing? How do I use it? What's it for? And I think that consumer education piece, generally, and just great product management, is missing still almost entirely from the blockchain space.
1: Well, the 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 pro, you know, passionate arguments are pretty passionate, right? So, um, you know, there's a general belief that airdrops are good for people who want to actually use. Use crypto, right? So you're you're going to get this token, you're going to use it for something. Um, creates a network effect, but compared to ICOs, which we've seen that just basically drive speculation in a lot of cases, airdrops can drive actual use, right? This is this is the the pro argument. Um, and unlike mining, airdrops are considered to be, you know, easy and accessible to people who are new to crypto and lack technical understanding. You don't have to learn how to trade. You know, you just have a wallet and these things arrive there. Um, so, you know, that's, that's meant to enable people to acquire crypto, um, easily without a cost. The without a cost to me is still, um, the, the bit that I can't quite get my arms around because there, there is a cost. Does, does, does so the it, name derive
2: from the lead. Ben Bernanke helicopter money concept, right? <laughs> like, is that where Airdrop comes from? Because I feel like it's inherently just saying if I distribute cash, right, it will, you know, incite this consumerism activity.
0: Mm, I actually don't yeah. know. Um, listeners, if you know, email podcasts at 11fs.com and do let us know. Um, but yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Uh, Already, uh, last story this week is Coindesk.com. Apparently, Coinbase offers $5,000 egg freezing benefit in a bid to retain talent. Oh, there's a headline. So Silicon Valley uh, cryptocurrency unicorn has taken an unusual expensive step to recruit and retain diverse employees with possibilities for egg freezing and IVF, um, fertility preservation, surrogacy and more. Our fertility benefits can serve a wide range of use cases for our diverse group of employees, Nat McGrath who is Coinbase's VP of People, told Coindesk. Um, given that egg freezing often costs up to $22,000, um, it, it, know, it's a pretty expensive piece, and um, out-of-pocket expenses can be deep. But my God, this headline.
1: Yeah. So um, a diverse group of employees. I mean, I, I, I can appreciate what they're trying to do, but, you know, I mean, this is targeted at women, Let's 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 just let's not call it a diverse group of employees. They're, we're the only ones that can make the baby, so they're targeting us. Um, and to me, this doesn't actually solve a problem. So I'm going to put on you know my 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 not well used you know feminist hat here and say why not increase your parental leave. Why not offer better childcare benefits? Why not make it easier for women to have their families when nature intends us to have children mm-hmm. instead of risking, you know, without the risk of career stagnation or, you know, career suicide when it's safe for us to get pregnant, not, you know, post 40 when it's quite high risk and dangerous.
2: I completely agree with that, but it's also not a specific crypto or Coinbase benefit, right? This seems to be the new hot thing in Silicon Valley uh. Google, Apple, facebook all the tech but, uh, companies.
0: Right. To, to try and advocate for them here and to take an opposing position, because I feel like we need to create the debate um, more than anything. It's not saying what are the things they did offer as a result, right? So they may be offering this on top of those things. And if they are, then credit to them what CoinDesk sure. may have done here is taken the one interesting thing and ignored all the good things. So if what Coinbase have done is Offer an amazing package that includes this. That is um, really friendly towards families. Fantastic. Well done. Let's see more of that. If this is isolated from uh, offering, you know, true uh, kind of. Uh, I think flexibility in working yeah. patterns. Then it's a bit weird. The way it's presented is as a bit weird, but the reality is we don't know. So let's let's try. Or is and it research.
1: is it available to everyone? So you know potentially, um, you know Patrick and I are married. Patrick is the Coinbase employee, and I'm unable to conceive. Mm-hmm. Does the benefit kick in? even though I'm not a Coinbase employee? Because that would actually be well, a real a benefit. benefit. We right? care about our employees. We care mm. about their families. That would be different. So, you know, this, this particular article doesn't tell us that.
0: I mean, look, let's face it. Um, the broader point here is uh, finance has a diversity issue. Tech has a, and, and specifically a gender diversity issue, um, but a diversity issue more broadly, but specifically gender. Uh, the uh, tech industry has a gender diversity issue. The blockchain finance tech industry is like the worst of the worst of the worst. If what we're seeing here is one of the major tech unicorns getting its house in order in order to encourage um, diversity and responsibility in the workplace, I applaud them. Um, But my... God, whoever let that headline happen or got that scoop. I mean, it's either great clickbait or it's a terrible bit of PR. But whichever it is, I'm glad it highlighted the need for increasing gender diversity, regardless. Agree. Alrighty. Um, Stories we didn't have time to cover Um, from ethereumworldnews.com. Does the Bitcoin cash hard fork hurt mainstream adoption? Uh, And then a link from Coindesk, uh, Colorado regulators crack down on four more ICOs. States be going rogue. They happen. Um, And Coindesk.com, the Malaysian government and universities team on to put degrees on a blockchain interesting idea. If you've ever had to prove that you have a qualification, that's actually not as bad as an idea as it sounds. Although um, I can feel people saying why isn't that
2: just on a website somewhere with a database? I, th- I think MIT's done that in the past though, yeah. right, as being
0: the first to do that. It, it, uh, with all these things it's not that it's decentralized, it's will anybody use it? Yes. Like <laughs> I could do that on a centralized database, I could do it on a decentralized database. The advantage of doing it decentralized is if I disappear and all my servers disappear, sure. it's still there. There's uh-huh. a resiliency advantage Without question. But then, like, if nobody uses it, whether you, it's centralized you, you, or decentralized, you, you, it doesn't matter. You,
2: good luck getting the foreign embassy to accept that on your work visa
0: application. <laughs> right. Here, here. Um, alrighty. Um, the tweet of the week comes from Dr. Craig Wright. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the tweet of the week. Tweet of the week. Okay, tweet of the week. Um so wow. Um there's a lot to get through here. Um so he's he's doing a quote uh <laughs> And the quote says something like, um, and and he's speaking to a guy named Greg, and uh, he quotes Greg as saying, I see now that Roger Ver, Rick Falk, Vinge, Oliver Janssens, and Jihan Wu appear to be aggressively attacking you in public and trying to distance BCH from you. To the best of my knowledge, all of these parties previously believed in you. The cracks created by Peter Rizzo and his staff, I think that was supposed to mean Peter Rizzo, the Coindesk guy, – seem to be widening at an exponential pace and are now starting to encompass people such as the above that previously couldn't be convinced by any argument to align against you. It seems to me that it's simply a matter of time before blah, blah, blah. So... Dr. Craig Wright goes, thanks for the offer, Greg, but Bitcoin is about proof of work. Miners, users are not nodes. Um, you do not understand. I do not want POSM, P-O-S-M. Um, you really think this is about being liked or accepted? Ha ha Did you like my maniacal laugh there? Like, wherever Craig Wright goes, he seems to cause controversy. BCH, which were the splitters originally from Bitcoin... They will never admit that they were that. Of course, they are the true and one and only Bitcoin religion. Um, But they were less as a percentage of hash rate than um, the rest of Bitcoin. Uh, Now seems to be embroiled in a a holy war amongst themselves. And in walks, Craig Wright to just really mess everything up. I mean, just like save the drama for the llama on this one.
1: Um, I have decided long ago that I'm going to remain agnostic on the XBTBCH hmm. situation. Um, who was first? How many forks? Who owns it? All of these things. I who feel, gives a fork? <laughs> I feel like when I read these, that these tweets should come with some kind of like tribal drums that play behind <laughs> them because it is, you know, ideology at its core.
0: It's drama, isn't it? It, it, it just seems unnecessary. Although I, I agree with you. I'm all for if your view is that... Um, you know, decentralized peer-to-peer electronic cash is a right way to do things, great, I support you. If your view is that you should have something that's like digital gold, great, try that too. Why the, like, hate? Like
1: I don't know why we can't. kind of Judea. Yeah. Right, so that's the point <laughs> yeah. that we made
0: last week when Colin went on a rather amusing rant was that we end up in the reference from The Life of Brian in which you've got the Judean People's Front and the People's Front of Judea and yes, he's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy, is apparently what Craig Wright is. And if you know what Monty Python is, that's funny.
1: I just, I think that um, the the cash people should do their thing and Bitcoin people should do their thing and I just wish we could all play nice.
0: Well, that's not all, folks. Uh, We actually caught up with Ryan Taylor, no relation, who is the CEO of the Dash Core Group. We are here on Blockchain Insider once more, and I have the good fortune of being joined by the CEO of the Dash Core Group, Mr. Ryan Taylor. How are you? Doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm very well. And Ryan Taylor, no relation to Simon Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not not unless you go way, way back, I imagine. I, I'm sure there's a long way back. All right. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. For the listeners who may live under a rock and may not be aware, um, do you want to remind us who Dash Core Group are?
3: Right. So Dash Core Group is the largest entity that's servicing the Dash uh, cryptocurrency network. We uh, have around 60 to 70 employees and contractors working for us around the world. We are not the only entity that's servicing the network. So I'm the CEO of Dash Core Group, not the CEO of Dash. Dash is a payments-oriented digital currency network. We have a, a number of uh, differentiators, but mainly we're, we're really focused on being a
0: high-quality payment cool. method. That's the the core focus. And, and so for uh, listeners who are familiar with things like uh, Bitcoin and proof of work and Ethereum and the world computer uh, versus um, traditional payment networks, uh, what would you say sort of the key parts of Dash that differentiate it from say Bitcoin or traditional payments? right. So Bitcoin
3: is of course the the first and most famous digital currency network. And Dash is actually a fork from Bitcoin. We inherit a lot of their code. Um, however, we, we kind of noticed that uh, there were some issues when you look at payment, uh, look at, at Bitcoin from a payments network perspective. And and that's what Dash really set out to evolve and to improve upon. And so th- there's a, a few key areas that we've, we've addressed. One is speed. Um, Dash transactions take place in about a second and a half, about the same as a credit card transaction, which makes them feasible at the point of sale. The second area is governance. Uh, With Bitcoin, we've seen the difficulty that they have uh, with making decisions. And it seems like a lot of the debate takes place on Reddit or other forums uh, with a lot of name calling. and, And we thought there would be a better way to do governance. And so we have an explicit governance system that is uh, voting based. And so decisions can be made very quickly and easily. Funding. This is an issue that most cryptocurrency networks deal with. Um, they have uh, you know foundations and other nonprofits that they collect donations for, but they're chronically short of funds to do the things that they want to do. Um, Meanwhile, they're spending billions of dollars on mining or the process of securing those networks. And and we thought, you know, mining is only one need that a network has. And so what we've done is split out our block reward or the new coins that are created, um, as well as the transaction fees. And they go towards three areas, mining being just one. Um, we also incentivize the running of infrastructure, the servers that relay these messages around the network. And then you need to incentivize everything else. There's legal work. There's uh, programmers that are needed. There's business development. All of these things need to some type of support. And so uh, with Dash, we, we've, we've addressed those issues. Um, and then the last component is privacy. We have some enhanced privacy features um, that many of our users find valuable, um, basically protects um, users from having their balances uh, being shown publicly. Uh,
0: that, that's really important for safety in, in using these networks. Absolutely, especially if you're in an emerging market and/or um, you have um, a, a significant personal wealth, uh, of course. So, talk to me about uh, your users. You, you mentioned the, the the key word there. Who's using Dash, and why are they using it? And can you throw some metrics at me?
3: Sure. So, Dash is really focused on being a payment network, and and that means that uh, that we are very focused on having the ability to easily obtain it and easily spend it. And we have around 3,300 merchants around the globe that are, are registered on a website called discover-dash.com. And we're picking up uh, probably around 500 merchants a month at this point. And so it's been accelerating. Um a lot
0: of those merchants... And, and do you mind if I interject briefly, um, what, what does that merchant look like and where are they in the world? Right. So virtually anything you can think of, someone is
3: is accepting uh, Dash as a payment method. We have everything from car dealerships to coffee shops, to online retailers, to car services. There's a just a wide variety of different merchant types. You know, there there tends to be a lot of small mom and pop type places, but we also have some pretty at scale retailers, places like uh, uh, CheapAir.com, except Stash as a form of payment. So um, there is a, a concentration in the physical world, though, when you move offline, uh, we have a, a high concentration of retailers in New Hampshire and in Venezuela. Where about half of our merchants are
0: Wow that's significant of course because Venezuela has been going through significant inflation challenges um, and the economy is is largely crumbling um, so half of your merchants are actually based there uh, and what about user base do you have any view I mean given the privacy um, elements to dash I guess it's hard to say what, where your merchants are but certainly maybe some IPS might might give away some some rough locations.
3: Yeah. um, Our users are based in, well, all over the world, obviously, um, but a high concentration in uh, North America, Europe, and uh, South America. And so that's where the vast majority of our users are. Uh, It's really hard to tell how many users we have, but if you look at various metrics, like the number of wallets that get downloaded and uh, the number of, people that follow us on, on one of our social media channels. Um, we we'd estimate we have around a half a million users worldwide.
0: Which, if you're a startup with half a million users, that's not insignificant, right? I mean, that's that's a it's a meaty startup, and, and given how old the the currency is, that's um that's kind of uh, probably about right for where it should be in its growth trajectory. Um, but but talk to me about a couple of things before we get to the future of Dash. I want to talk a little bit about this privacy word, the good old P word, because one person's privacy is another person's money laundering risk. How do you see the the responsibility of balance? the need for individuals' privacy set against the context of everything we've seen with, uh, you know, in, in, in recent weeks. We saw that Facebook uh, had 50 million uh, accounts hacked. We saw that um, the uh, Equifax had, however, hundreds of million uh, hacked. And when your business model is data, you've got a challenge. But on the other side, um, those, those bodies can easily collaborate with law enforcement in a way that is harder, um, perhaps, for um, an anonymous crypto asset or cryptocurrency to be able to do so so sorry. how do you balance those two yeah
3: well i I think that clearly there is a need for a greater level of privacy I don't think that users have demanded it up until very recently if you look at surveys of people that that ask them to rate the importance of convenience versus privacy versus other attributes uh, privacy usually ranks pretty low and when it comes to the reality of things, uh, you know, uh, surveying people is one thing, but their behavior is often very different than the surveys would suggest. And uh, when you look at their behavior, it's even less so that they care about privacy. Um, and so, you know, we, we put a great deal of emphasis on convenience and uh, ease of use uh, here at Dash. And that's one of the reasons we've grown, but we still believe that privacy is an important issue. and, you know, I think that uh, it's both a safety issue as well as just a basic right um, that, you know, your neighbors shouldn't be able to spy on the blockchain and look at what your balances are. And, you know, when you do a transaction at a point of sale, they shouldn't be able to see how much money goes back into your wallet as change. And so we, we believe that that we need to provide those features. When, when people talk about this space, though, and they talk about privacy, they assume that it's very binary. You either have privacy, absolute privacy, or you have none at all. And that's not the case. Uh, even the case with Bitcoin, it, it's always been called pseudonymous. Pseudonomin- and that's because once you can attach a name to a particular address, you can analyze it and you can, you can track it. Um, At the other end of the spectrum is probably some solution like Monero, which is a cryptocurrency that uh, optimizes for the level of anonymity. And that anonymity comes at costs. It comes at the cost of a very large transaction size. And so they can't do many transactions on their network before it becomes quite bloated. And it comes at, at the cost of ease of use. You have to have a full copy of the entire blockchain in order to use it. And that makes it prohibitive to use it on a mobile device. And that's pretty inconvenient. So this is a spectrum, is my point. And different use cases will fall at different points on that spectrum. And I'd say where, where Dash falls is it follows all the same rules as Bitcoin. We inherited their their code base. A valid transaction in Dash is a valid transaction in Bitcoin and vice versa. And an invalid transaction in Dash is invalid in Bitcoin and vice versa. So from a legal standpoint, they are identical. What we've done is take some of the tools that are available to uh, Bitcoin and made them easier and cheaper to use. And so people can You know, regular people can use this stuff. The transactions themselves are still transparent on the blockchain. You can see the amounts that are being moved, the addresses involved in the transaction. It's just obscured a bit because uh, uh, these funds have been mixed together in a certain way. Ultimately, there are analytical tools that can analyze these transactions and attempt to place probabilities on where they came from. And so I couldn't go out and set up an ISIS ad- donation address. And lo and behold, every time I were to go and, and spend that money, there'd be a 1% chance it came from that ISIS address. It wouldn't take very many transactions before you'd be able to say, well, you know, with almost certainty, I can say that, that this guy is is the same as that ISIS person
0: because the records are permanent and everybody and many people have a copy of those records and uh, unlike i guess the existing banking system they don't exist in paper in another country they exist in a record that we know matches and i think that's a pretty pretty powerful point and i guess there's something else there about your you're targeting low value payments between sort of consumers and merchants rather than global um kind of fx and and large um payments you know sort of fx corridors which is you know very high amounts of uh value so it's kind of a, a different target market. I'm interested though, uh, what does the future look like for Dash? Um, you've got um, over 3,000 merchants. Um, you estimate something like uh, half a million wallets. What does good look like for you in a year, two years, three years time, especially set against the context of what had been a bit of a bear market crypto winter is here? You know What, what does the future look like and what targets are you guys setting yourselves?
3: Yeah, most of the cryptocurrency market is speculative in nature right now. I think there's, and and I'm, I think that's probably appropriate. I mean, the, the technology has huge potentials. Uh, and, and so we'll see which projects end up, um, you know, carving out a, a, a large portion of that. And so I, I don't think it's unwarranted that people are speculating on it, but we need to move from speculation into actual use in order for this to be sustainable. And that's what we've been focused on. We, uh, laid out our strategy as Dash Core Group, keeping in mind there are other entities out there servicing the network. But, uh, we laid out on our most recent quarterly call, uh, our plans for expansion. And there are certain things that cryptocurrency does really well. And, and we're, we're planning on targeting those. One is high chargeback industries. Um, we're starting with online gaming. Uh, things like fantasy sports, and the reason is is because high chargebacks cost ultimately the merchant, and those costs get passed along to the consumer whenever you have an industry with really high credit card chargebacks it's not good for either party uh, they get targeted by fraudsters and and uh, you know online gambling is is certainly one of those, and so we think that this is a solution that can el- these are basically cash transactions. There is no such thing as a chargeback in cryptocurrency. And so it, it does away with the fraud, the consumer-based fraud, where, where people do a transaction and then claim it wasn't them. And there are others. Nutraceuticals is a good example. Online travel is a good example of this, where people buy a, a flight and regret it. And the only way to get their money back is to claim it wasn't them. And so that's one Um, Another is high inflation environments, like what we're seeing in Venezuela. It is a great use case. People are losing a good 20% of the value of their funds between the time the credit card transactions go through and the time that the merchant actually gets the money in their bank account. That's incredible. And so they will gladly accept the volatility of cryptocurrency um, over that alternative. A third one is the cannabis industry in the U.S. This is an industry that is all cash. And um, we're partnered with a company called Alt 36 to create a payment gateway that's being integrated into a lot of the larger point of sale systems in the industry. The next is is just exchanges. Uh, right now, cryptocurrency exchanges, in order to arbitrage between exchanges, it can take you know minutes to move, minutes or an hour or two to move funds between exchanges, Dash has instant payments. And so we can actually enable arbitrage opportunities between exchanges. So we're trying to get our instant send technology enabled on more and more exchanges to help uh, capture some of that flow. I, I think that when you focus on these use cases that cryptocurrency does really well, I think that that's where you can gain a foothold and gain some real adoption. Um, the last one I, I forgot to mention is uh, international remittances. And this is, you know, something that Western Union and, and MoneyGram and others, they, they can take 10 to 17 percent of a transaction in order to facilitate money movement and often among the world's poorest people, sending money back to their families. And so we're, we're focusing on uh, certain corridors, starting with the U.S. to Mexico corridor, and we've got some partners in the works there to help us uh, scale that out. And it leverages our great infrastructure that we have here in the U.S. Uh, we have a lot of ATMs, hundreds of ATMs across the country. And, of course, a number of different services like Uphold and, and exchanges like Kraken that integrate with Dash. And so it makes it easy to move money from the U.S. to other places. And, and we just need to set up that infrastructure on the other end of that transaction.
0: And hopefully mindful of um, avoiding uh, getting around uh, money laundering controls whilst we do it and making sure that the endpoints are, are kind of helping with that. Because I guess um, from your point, you're building a network or one of the organizations helping to build a network, and but you're not the wallet and you're not the, uh, the you're definitely not the exchange. So there's there's only so much you, you can kind of put around that. Before I let you answer that as well, and, and I will, um, I just want to say um, we're kind of in close on time. Um, so I just want to say, um, you know, listen, it's, it's been huge. Uh, usually beneficial to learn more about Dash, um, do do feel free to follow up on that point, but also remind our listeners where they can find out more about uh, Dash and what Dash Core Group is doing.
3: Yeah, sure. So there are, like I said, many different projects servicing the network. Um, so there's a couple different sources that, that I would point people to. The first is our, our website, dash.org. And there are links to many different resources there, including some of the community organizations and uh, places like Telegram or Slack, where there are channels that, that people can, can uh, you know, meet with other community members. Uh, Discover Dash is a great website for uh, you know, discovering all the great places that you can spend Dash and use it, um, some of the benefits to using it. And there's another website called Dash Nexus, where you can see all the projects that are taking place in Dash that are being funded every single month by the network itself. And there's a lot of great projects around the world. And potentially, there's one there that people can get involved with locally.
0: Brilliant. Uh, Ryan Taylor, CEO of Dash Core Group. Thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider, sir. Thank you. Alrighty. Thanks so much to Ryan. Um, And uh, thanks very much to you for listening. Just as a quick reminder, of course, this podcast is made by 11FS and we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. If you want to get an example of what that looks like, check out metal.co.uk, which is a business account for small businesses in the UK. Uh, We're changing how small businesses operate and deal with day to day problems. And it's a product that you can sign up for and get on the waiting list right now. Now, if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, well, why haven't you subscribed yet? The button's just right there. Just click it. And if you've already subscribed, go over to your friends and be really weird and click their button to subscribe to. Um, we understand um, that you might want to avoid the five star review because of Colin G. Platt, but go on. You've got Tina Baker Taylor now, TBT herself. I
1: love you, Colin G. Platt.
0: <laughs> Give us those reviews. That would be awesome. Okay, where can people find out more about you, Tina?
1: On Twitter at, at Tina Taylor.
0: Wow. I'm uh, really excited that your Twitter handle is out there. Some am tweeting some good stuff lately. Right, <laughs> have I been? Yeah. Oh, okay, good. You get following Tina people. And what about yourself, Patrick?
2: Uh, I only tweet when I think I can win a prize, but uh, I'm, more <laughs> found, I'm more found on LinkedIn under Patrick Mang.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, Patrick. And a big thank you, of course, to our amazing production team here at 11FS. And thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye.